Yeah. Hey, how many of y'all are already registered for the marriage conference? Come on, let me hear you. Uh, do me a favor, and y'all want to go ahead and do that if you can. Uh, you can go right outside. You can see it on a poster. Register on our website. We're, we're starting to finalize a lot of the details from food to child care to all kinds of different things, and it helps us know uh, if you're coming because what, what would help us a lot is to not get people to register uh, last minute or the day of. Can I get an amen? amen. Uh, and so if you want to be here, again, it's going to be a great time, real intimate time together. We'll be in here. We have about four or five sessions from an intimacy session to a Q&A session. Uh, it's just going to be a really great time for you. Whether, listen, and whether you are, you may be sitting here going, yeah, my marriage is struggling. We need this. Or you may be somebody in here going, my marriage is pretty healthy. We don't need this. You still need it, okay? Uh, and here's why you still need it, because, and this is some of the stuff we're going to talk about, marriage is a constant reworking, okay? Every day, you're a new person. Every week, you're a new person. So it's always coming back and talking about it. Uh, so I want to encourage you to do that, register for me. My name is Troy. My wife, Darla, and I get the absolute privilege to pastor this church. And uh, if you are visiting with us, I do want to say welcome. We are so glad to have you. And as Darla said in a video, we'd love for you to go out and uh, bring in one of those connection cards so that, number one, we can give you a free gift. We just want to say thank you because you could be spending your Sunday somewhere else, but you're choosing to be here with us, and we don't take that lightly. But also just allow us to connect with you and put you through to some of our team members, let you help connect and meet some people, because our biggest passion is for you to do just that, to not just attend church but to find church family and to be connected and to be impacted by the gospel, by grace, and again, just by a church family. I do want to say two quick things uh, towards the giving aspect of our church. Uh, so first of all, let me say thank you to every person that gives faithfully every week, every month to this church. There's so much we're able to do both inside the four walls and outside. For the past four or five weeks or so, we've been talking about our partnership with Convoy of Hope and providing water filters, and that will come to a close today. We'll give almost 50 water filters towards Convoy of Hope. That's 130. Yeah, come on. We can give God praise for that. Come on. Uh, we, we talk, I've said this multiple weeks, 100,000 gallons of fresh water per water filter. So you're talking about almost 5 million uh, gallons of fresh water that through your finances and through your faithfulness will go out to some of these third world countries. Uh, we're going to be moving on to our, our new um, task that we're tackling as a church. And this is going to take us through this month and all the month of March. We are focusing on literacy in some of the local sc schools here in Antioch. And so we're going to be talking about it the next couple of weeks. We're going to be encouraging you to bring a book. Uh, we're gonna, gonna, we've already going to provide books through those of you that have been faithful. We'll talk more about that in the upcoming weeks. But we're also going to have some opportunities for you to actually go to some of the schools and take some time to read. Uh, I'll share with you later on some statistics about uh, the, you know, the, the lack of literacy throughout different schools in this area, as well as schools throughout our entire country. But it's important, and we feel like it's important, so we're partnering with Empowerment Incorporated, and we're going to start moving some of our attention towards that over the next month and a half. And so like I said, I'll, I'll be bringing you statistics and opportunities to serve and opportunities to give. But what I love about it is I get to get up here and say, because of your faithfulness already, we're already invested. We're already donating books. We're already involved. And then if you want to do something on top of it, you can. And so I just, I love that. I love the privilege to be able to be in meetings. I was in three different meetings this week with community uh, engagements where I'm able to say, victory is a part of it. Victory is in it. Victory is in it. And I don't have to come back and go, hey, could you guys please give so that we can be a part of this? I'm able to say, because we're already good stewards of our 
finances because we already have people who are faithfully giving. Uh, we're able to be involved. I stood in Mill Ridge Park in Antioch. I talked a little bit about it on my Facebook, and we're, we're engaging with them on some events coming up. Uh, we talked about Easter, but we may, we may do that next year as they're trying to get things ready. But I'm looking at this massive park that's maybe five to six minutes from our church where we can go and do all kinds of things, hang out with our kids, and it's just cool to be able to partner with different areas and organizations in our community. And so I want to say thank you, church, for being so generous. Amen? Amen. Uh, I cannot believe that both Zenobia and Brian would get on stage and be for the Eagles in front of all you guys. Uh, I'm not biased by any means. I don't really care who wins. Um, can you tell? I'm lying there. All right, there we go. So uh, I need everybody who is not a Eagles fan to pray and believe for the Chiefs today. Can I get an amen? You there with me? All right, all right. Let's get to what really matters. Let's get to the word. Um, if you have your Bibles, do me a favor. Go ahead and open up the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is in your Old Testament. You're going to go to chapter 8. Uh, if you are visiting with us, let me give you a little bit of context as to what's happening. So the book of Nehemiah is actually about a man named Nehemiah who God lays on his heart to go back to his hometown, to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild these walls of the town because they got attacked, the walls were torn down, their people were enslaved, and they were taken to a place called Babylon, and now God has freed them, and they're returning home, and they want to live in freedom in their hometown, but they have to build the walls because without walls, there's no security, and so this is the whole concept of Nehemiah. The whole book of Nehemiah is him and people that God's provided to surround him with rebuilding these walls. And so for the past few weeks, we've talked about all kinds of things from building boundaries in your life to having the right people in your life that can help you rebuild the walls. But this week and next week are kind of unique because in the actual uh, book of Nehemiah, the wall is now rebuilt. And so what you and I are going to talk about today and next week have a lot to do with our lives post rebuilding. Uh, we started this year with the word being rebuilding and the idea that we rebuild our marriages, or we might rebuild our relationship with Jesus Christ, or we might rebuild our finances, or we might rebuild our community, and not rebuilding it back to what it was, but rebuilding it to what it was always supposed to be, what God always intended it to be. And so today's message and next week's message are really kind of looking forward into this concept of you have rebuilt or you have begun the process of rebuilding, and these are things you have to keep in mind. So you ready for the word? Nehemiah chapter 8, we'll start reading at verse 2. I'm going to hop a little bit between 2 and 9, and I'll read it, and then we'll get going. It says, so on the first day of the, seven month, of the seventh month, Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly. The law is the first five books of the Bible. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those first five books in your Bible, the Old Testament, if you start at Genesis, that's literally Genesis, it'll go Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That is what they called the law back then because it has how you should behave as someone who is going to be a follower of God. So they called it the law, okay? So that's what he breaks out before the assembly of the people. It says the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all of the people who were able to understand. So any kid, any young person who's at the age to be able to process the law, they've gathered to hear this. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon, that's a long time, as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men and the women and the others who could understand it. And all of the people listened attentively to the book of the law. People honored, they respected the law. So everybody's listening 
and interested. Then Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. I thought that was unique that I'm standing on a high wooden platform. But it's just always kind of been the way it is. It elevates the communicator. It brings attention to what we're talking about because what that person's saying is, is important for our life, and so we're engaged. We're going to skip a little bit, and it says Ezra opened the book. So Ezra opened the law, and all of the people could see him because he was standing above them, right? This is kind of basic information, but you get it. As he opened it, the people all stood up. You may have been in a church before where the pastor would say, let's stand for the reading of the word. That's kind of where they get some of this from, that people stood up in honor in the reading of the word. But it goes on to say, they read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Now, you have to understand, everybody's in the square and they're listening to Ezra. He's reading the word. They're listening. And it says, then Nehemiah, the governor. So Nehemiah, the guy we've been following. Ezra, the priest and the teacher of the law. And the Levites, who were instructing the people, said to them all. Watch this. This is important. This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn and do not weep. Why would he say that? And it goes on to tell us, for all of the people had been weeping as they were listening to the words of the law. That was the part where as I was studying through the book of Nehemiah, that was the part that jumped out to me, that all of the people were weeping as they were listening to the law. I want to talk to you this morning just for a moment from this idea, trading chains, trading chains. I have recently kind of um, been very honest with you guys about my family and I and the difference between vacation and a family trip. You know, if, if you've been here over the past probably six months to a year, you've heard me express this. I'll, I'll say, and I'll tell this in case you're new or in case you haven't heard me say this for more. I'm about to give you wisdom that is, it's just insane for you, for your marriage, for your sanity. This is great wisdom for you. If you go out of town and you go without your kids, that, my friends, is a vacation. If you go out of town and you go with your kids, that, my friends, is a family trip. Okay, you need to learn this because you will come home from a family trip and people will treat you like you came home from a vacation, right? Like you need to get back to work. You've been on vacation. I have not been on vacation. The devil is a liar. We talked about that last week. I have been on a family trip. So get it, you know, don't get it twisted. Let's be honest about where I was and you can manage your expectations. And so I was talking to somebody recently when I first introduced this idea and they said, I don't really, you know, they were one of those really good parents. They were like, I don't really understand what you mean by that. I see them both as vacations. And I was like, whatever, you know. <laughs> and so I said, well, let me give you more of a, of a greater explanation. I said, if, if my family and I or, or my wife and I go to the beach without our kids for five or six days, we're on the beach. You know what I mean? We're sleeping on the beach. We're resting on the beach. We're relaxing on the beach. It's a totally different scenario than our normal week. If we take our kids to the beach, we are parenting on the beach. We are refereeing on the beach, right? We are yelling and arguing and stressing on the beach, okay? So that's what I mean. It's, it's a different scene but it's the same situation, right? 
So that's why it's a family trip and not a vacation. And, and here's where my mindset is with this. Sometimes you and I in life, we hope for change, but we find ourselves in different scenes, but with similar struggles. Like, like we hope for situations to change. We hear about scenarios where we believe that there will be a shift in our current experience. And with that shift, something's going to change and there's going to be hope. But then we get into that new situation, that different scene. And even though we're in a different scene, we're still experiencing similar struggles. Let me give you some examples. Um, you may be in a different relationship, but you have the same hangups, right? You may be in a different city but yet you got the same insecurities. It may be a different day, but it's the same disappointments. So, it's, so the scene has changed. You might have a different job, but it's the same issues, right? Your kid may be in a different season of life, but it's still difficult, right? Like the, the scene has changed, but you look up and you go, man, I'm in similar struggles, and if we're not careful with something like this, it can be very easy for you and I to develop these um, fatalistic views where we start to believe that life is just something that we have to endure and that we can never actually expect for things to get better. This is why, watch, we'll find ourselves going into a different relationship but just expecting it to fail as well. I heard somebody talking on a podcast that said, you know, this was the stance I had in my first marriage. This is the stance I have in my current marriage. And this will be the stance I'll have in my next marriage. He's in a different relationship already expecting it to end, right? Because we can get in different jobs and different scenarios and different seasons of life and still expect it to be miserable. Be at a point where we don't really have an expectation for anything to change or be better. So, so let's talk a little bit about these people in Nehemiah. According to theological studies, they have rebuilt this wall in record timing. They, they, let's just say, I forget the actual timeline, but let's just say it was supposed to take them 52 weeks to do it. They did it in like 37 weeks. This, this was huge. Not only had they rebuilt the walls, but they had done it in record timing. This was a huge success. And so they rebuild the walls and they gather everybody into the square. And they're going to commission these walls by reading the five first books of the Bible. That's the whole, that's what they're doing. Everybody gather. Let's come together. We're going to celebrate us rebuilding these walls by reading Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy as a commissioning over. And they start to read. And because the law, what the law does is the law uh, shows us that we are unholy. The law shows us that we are not worthy. The law shows us of our sins. It reveals our shortcomings, and it sets us up. If we understand Christ and grace, it sets us up to need Jesus. So they start reading this, and the people instantly start weeping because now they are learning or at least being reminded that they are sinners. <laughs> They're being reminded of their shortcomings. They're being reminded of no matter how good they are, no matter how well they perform, they are not good enough. And so they go from, we rebuilt these walls, to now crying and weeping and upset. Where they should be worshiping, they're weeping. Where they should be celebrating with joy, they are overwhelmed with judgment. You see, I believe that Jesus came to offer real freedom. 
I know that not everybody believes like me, but I know enough of scripture and I know enough of my actual experience with God where I actually believe that I can be set free by Jesus. I actually believe that I can be in the midst of a hardship and still experience freedom. I believe that I can make mistakes and fail and still be walking in freedom. This is what I believe about Jesus. Sadly, though, a lot of religious environments, I think some of you may be able to test this in the past, too often give this impression that a life with Jesus is less about relationship building and more about rule following. And so when that's what we're taught, that this Christianity, this religious experience with Jesus is all about your ability to keep rules versus your ability to be in a relationship with Jesus, it makes sense that there will be times in your life where you should be joyful, but you're overwhelmed with judgment. There'll be times in your life where you should be worshiping, but you'll be weeping. There'll be times in your life where you should be celebrating what you've accomplished with God's grace and God's power and moving forward, but you can't shake the fact that you are a sinner and that you have failed and you will find yourself standing in the square like the men and women weeping instead of worshiping. When I first got saved, I got saved at about 17 and a half years old. And so Darla and I were talking about this with some friends over the weekend. I, I, didn't, I, didn't, like, I just kind of got thrown into it, you know what I mean, at that age. And so there was some curiosity in me. There's kind of some out-of-the-box thinking with me. There are a lot of traditions that I didn't jump onto because I was not raised in church. And so there were traditions in the church world that didn't make sense to me. Like, I've told y'all about this before. I'd walk in the door, and you know, people would tell me what I had to wear. People would tell me how I had to act. And I was like, I don't, I don't understand this. But it was real easy for me to kind of adapt to that because that's all I knew. Because my church, my, my church that I got saved in was a great church, and the pastor was a great pastor. But there was just traditional people. But those people loved me, and so it was real easy for me to just kind of fall into that culture and that concept and for that to become normal for me. But here's a question I could never shake. Why wouldn't everyone want to surrender their life to Jesus? I couldn't wrap my mind around that. Like, as I'm studying the Bible and I'm reading that Jesus died for my sins so that I don't have to die for them, when I'm learning that I can be set free, that when times are hard, I can give him my yoke and take his yoke, which is easy, and I can take his burden, which is light, when I'm reading all these things about Jesus, and I'll be really honest with you, I don't know if any of y'all are Chosen people, the show Chosen, but if you really want to get a character of Jesus, watch Chosen. It'll be like, how could you not want to follow Jesus? In a time where life is so hard, I used to always come back to the question, why wouldn't, when I meet people who don't go to church, I'm like, why wouldn't you want to go to church? I understand if you're out of town or, or you know, something happens, but why wouldn't you want to be at a place where you can worship God, be encouraged through the word, hang out with friends, you know, that believe like you believe and do cool things together, like impacting communities and small groups. Why wouldn't you want to do that? If you didn't know Jesus. And you had an opportunity to know Jesus. Why wouldn't you want to surrender your life to him? And man, the older I get, the more and more I understand it's because at some point people were presented one thing or, or, or they were told one thing, but they experienced another. The reason why somebody would not want to surrender their life to Jesus is because they were told one thing about Jesus, but then what they experienced in the name of Jesus wasn't what they were told. They got to hanging out with people who supposedly know Jesus, and everything they heard about Jesus didn't match up with the people who supposedly knew Jesus. And watch this. This, this is the mind-blowing thing for me. They were told that when it came to Christianity, they would experience freedom. 
but all they really felt like is they were just trading chains for chains. And that's what messed me up. That there are people all throughout our world and possibly in this room that you were told that when it came to Christ, when there was an opportunity for you to become a Christian and accept Jesus as your Savior, you would be set free. And you walked through and did what they said to do. You came to church. You said a prayer. You came down front. These things happened. And now looking back, all you feel like you did was you just took off one set of chains and took on this new set of chains and just replaced them. Let's go back to Nehemiah chapter 8 for a second before we get too deep in this. Nehemiah chapter 8, and again, like I said, they're, they built the walls. Ezra steps up, he breaks out the law, and he starts to read it. And y'all you know, just be with me. Like, this had to be the worst party ever. Y'all you know, remember in the office where it was like, uh, it is your birthday, period, right? Like, that, that's how this had to feel. Like, woo, what are we about to do? We're about to party. Somebody get the cake. You know, let's get ready. And then Ezra starts reading, and you're like, come on, bro. You know what I mean? Like, y'all you, you ever had that friend that just knows how to ruin every moment? Like, we're having fun. We're going to celebrate for a second. Yeah, but I don't know. Do you know how expensive this cake is? You know what I mean? I'm normally that guy, just so y'all know. Uh, um, but, but I'm just, you know, it's, it, it is one time we were, we, we were scheduling a trip with some friends, and those friends messaged Darla and I, and they said, hey, because of this and that, we can go a day earlier, right? And before I could respond, my friend sent back in the text, Troy's thoughts, but that's more money. And I was like, it's true. That's the first thing I thought. I'm that person, right? I'm just going to throw all of the water on your fire. Like, they're here. Man, we did it, Nehemiah. You were moved by God in chapter 1. God provided resources. The enemy came. We defeated the enemy. We built the wall. We built it quicker than we should have. Come on. Can we give God praise? Um, and then you found out that you are a sinner and you, uh, <laughs> bruh, buzz killer. Right? And that's what we're looking at. They're all weeping. They're all crying. They're exhausted from working, and now they're weeping because we're reading this law. In churches all over the world, all over the world, in Antioch, Tennessee, in other cities of Tennessee, in other states, in churches all over the world, you've got people who are putting their hands down in weariness instead of lifting them up in freedom. Yeah. Think about that. Just walking around, just, ugh, terrible. You are my champion. No, I'm not. You know what I mean? Like, you just, just, just absolutely overwhelmed by this concept. Trying to figure out, how do we move forward feeling victorious when everything continues to tell us that we're not? People who should be walking around celebrating and instead their hands are down in guilt and shame. You know, it's, it's kind of the situation where you say, hey, do me a favor, jump to my next slide for me. One more after that. There we go. It, it, it's being able to get to a place where we understand that, that many are defeated because instead of feeling the release of burdens we feel like we're just exchanging one burden for another. Yeah. Let me give you some examples of that. Before you're saved, the burden is you're a sinner destined for hell, right? That's the burden that we carry. Then we get saved, and now there's like this new burden of, of shame because we can't perform correctly. 
You see what I mean? So so pre-salvation, there's a burden. We're saved, and in our mind, we should be released from burdens. But after we're saved, we just adopt another burden. I couldn't save myself. That's a burden. Jesus died for me. Now I'm saved. But now I can't do the things that the law says I'm supposed to do to be a Christian. Another burden. Again, try to, try to, I don't know when y'all got saved, but I'm 17 years old. And I'm walking into an environment where people are telling me that I'm a sinner, but I can be saved by Jesus Christ. And so, boom, I want it, Jesus. Save me. Boom, saved from my sins. No condemnation. Chains released. I'm saved. A couple weeks later, I'm coming back to church being told that I can't walk in the church dressed like that. See what I mean? Now all I'm doing is picking up a different burden. And in a time where we should be celebrating, we're all just sitting around condemned. Now, I don't know about you, but I'll speak for me. I do not need religion to tell me that I'm not good enough. I am completely aware of my shortcomings. I am completely aware that every day I fall short of, watch this, not of God's expectations, you ready? Of my expectations. I don't need you to tell me. I'm completely aware of where I failed. I'm completely aware of where I can do better. And it drives me crazy. I'm being told every day, as are you. Look, Facebook tells me, right? Facebook tells me how many times I failed. It shows me how many people don't like my picture. I got a 1,000 and 1,700, whatever it is, friends, and six people like my picture. Everybody else hates me. You know what I mean? It tells me of how good I'm not doing because I'm watching other husbands and the way they're, you know, buying something for their wife or taking their wife here. I'm watching other fathers and the way they parent. And so Facebook is telling me every day that I'm a failure. For a lot of us, our jobs are telling us about our shortcomings. You didn't perform well. You didn't get that done. You're not going to get that raise. You're not going to get that job. For a lot of us, our friends are telling us about our shortcomings, right? You didn't do this. You didn't do that. You disappointed me. I wish, like, there's no, how do I say this? There's no shortage of information out there that you and I are not doing as well as we wish we'd be doing. That's everywhere. It's everywhere. And I just came to this conclusion. Everything in life is an assessment of our performance. Everything. Social media is an assessment of our performance. Our job is an assessment of our performance. If we're not careful, our marriage can become an assessment of our performance. If we're not careful, parenting will become an assessment of our performance. Our bank accounts can become an assessment of our performance, and they can all become evidence of our shortcomings. And if we don't understand grace and we leave in legalism, watch this, at the end we will go, and now it appears so is God. That's the answer right there. Everything in our life is an assessment of our shortcomings and our failures. And if we're not careful, we'll also step back and see God is the same. And here's your attitude, right? Like, I don't need another person to judge my failures. If all this whole concept of Christianity or God is, if all it is, is another entity that's going to tell me that I'm not good enough I don't need it. I've got enough of that. I can can be aware of that right here where I am. I don't need it. 
But when we operate by legalism, when there's this concept of you save yourself and your good works save yourself, like the people in Nehemiah, all we can do is sit and weep in the presence of God. And not weeping in the good way like worship, but weeping in a way of going, I'm never going to amount to enough. Even though I've done good things and we rebuilt the wall, I'm weeping. Why? Because I'm a sinner. Y'all remember the show Lucy? Anybody here watch the show? Isn't it called Lucy? The Lucy Show? I love Lucy. Any of y'all watch I Love Lucy? I know it's kind of an old show, but I love Lucy. There's this like famous scene where her and her best friend, I think her name's Ethel, maybe. Is that right? Okay. Um, so they're, they're sitting there and they're working on a conveyor belt. All right. And what's happening is on the conveyor belt, these chocolates are coming through. Y'all seen this? On it, I had to look it up just to refresh my memory. And, and the whole point is her and Ethel have to take a piece of candy, wrap it up in a wrapping, put it back on the conveyor belt, and it moves on to the next stage. And it's so funny when you watch it because it starts off and the conveyor belt's really slow. And they're like, they're getting all confident and cocky, and they're like, oh, we got this. You know, and they're taking their time and, you know, twisting it, putting it back. And then all of a sudden, the conveyor belt starts coming a little faster, and the pieces of chocolate start coming a little faster, and they start panicking. You know, they're picking up. Some are falling off. At one point, Lucy's picking them up and putting them in her shirt. Uh, Ethel's grabbing them and putting them in her mouth. Like, the whole thing is chaotic. Now, I'm watching this, and I'm like, in case you're, that's a little bit too old for you, there was an episode of Saved by the Bell that mimicked this. I don't know if y'all remember this, but it was Screech's, like, had, you know, uh, pasta sauce from, like, his grandpa. And they were all putting the pasta sauce in the little vases and putting the, 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 the little label on it. And they're all, and it's coming through, and they're doing it all easy. And all of a sudden, somebody hits the conveyor belt, and it starts coming fast, and they're grabbing it, and the pasta sauce is falling off, and it's breaking. And I thought about that. The Spirit of God put that in my head and said, that's us. That's us when we try to operate in a mindset of good works gets us into a relationship with God. Because a lot of us, watch this, when it starts off, we're like, man, I got this. This ain't, this ain't too hard. I kind of figured I read my Bible today. I prayed for a couple seconds. You know what I mean? I gave a dollar to the guy at the red light. Man, I am holy. This is great. And then all of a sudden, life starts happening, right? And the conveyor belt starts to speed up. Something happens. And now all of a sudden, you're just grabbing at stuff just so it doesn't. And you're watching stuff fall off. Boom, boom, boom. And it's chaos. And when something like that happens, all we can do is sit back and weep. Why? Because I'm not good enough. It's the same way with our marriage. I got this. This is so, ooh, this is so easy. I'm going to buy her flowers. I'm going to buy her flowers. You know? <laughs> Then it all goes wrong, and she's writing songs about you, how she can buy her own self flowers. You know what I mean? Like, the whole thing goes backwards. Just starts to run crazy, just everywhere. I got my finances is good. I can budget. And all of a sudden, boom, I can parent. We have that one baby. Oh, I can do this. It's great. It's two of us. It's one of them. We master them. And then at 3 in the morning, you ain't slept in 10 days. And you're not 100% sure if you can punch a baby. Like you're trying to figure out like if that's legal or not. You know what I mean? Because you're just, you're losing your mind. It's the same concept. Like, like it's everything. Listen to me. When it comes to religion, this is the same. I talked to you last week about a lie. This is the lie the enemy wants us to believe is that you and I are good enough to do it on our own. And the truth is for a moment you are. 
And there's a second where you start to go, man, this is easy. But the second life picks up and it starts to go, all of a sudden it gets out of control and you just grab it. You're throwing chocolates in your mouth. You're throwing them down your The whole world's falling apart. And because you think you're supposed to do it on your own and because you think your good gracious is defined by your good works, when your good works falls off the conveyor belt, all you can do like the people in Nehemiah is weep. Can't do it. The law always, watch this, the law always brings a person face to face with their wretchedness. It's what the law does. The law in itself is not bad. The law is supposed to, this is what Jesus said. Jesus said, the law is not bad. He said, I didn't come to get rid of it. I came to fulfill it. The, the, The law is what brings us face to face with our wretchedness. It's what lets us know. When you see the speed limit sign and it says 45 and you look down and you're doing 72, that's when it lets you know. It's just, it's just informing you, hey, <laughs> just a little bit, just a little bit. That's what law does. And law, without grace, we can only approach it one of two ways. And here's the one or two ways. We either deny our wretchedness and become self-righteous. Oh, I'm not a sinner. We start comparing other people. Well, I'm better than they are, right? Or... We, we, we start, we, we, get, we become despair, we get into despair because of our wretchedness. And here's the killer. We give up on following God. I think more people lean that way than the other. I think more people get into despair because of it and they just give up. Uh, we're, Darla and I are always looking for ways to better, you know, parent the kids and, and find ways to, to reward them and these kind of things. And, uh, Recently, they came up with this idea of this chart. And last night over dinner, we were trying to talk through what it was going to look like and the basis. But a couple weeks ago, Casey Ray started. Before Veda got involved, Casey Ray did it herself. And the idea was that she would get a check for every day that she's good. All right? So if she's good that day at the end of the night, she gets a check. If she's bad, she gets a line. I didn't even know this thing existed. Like her and Darla had talked about it. It was operating. And so the, the night comes, Darla and I are on the couch. We're getting ready for bed, kind of watching TV a little bit before bedtime. And Casey Ray walks in. And she stands in front of Darla and she goes, so... How'd I do today? And I'm listening to it. I'm like, what's, what's going on? And she goes, Mama, do, do I get a check or do I get a line? Like, how did I do today? And Darla, being, you know, walking Jesus, she's like, baby, wasn't a great day. I'm thinking, like, it was terrible. Like, let me tell you how bad you were. You know what I mean? I got you on video. You know what I mean? Just watch this for a second. She's like, baby, it wasn't great. It wasn't great. And so, yeah, you're, you're probably going to get a line. And this was so funny because Kate Ray standing in front of her and there's a little chair over here. And as soon as Darla said that, she went, ah, and she put her face in the chair just like that. She's just, ah, and I'm watching it and I'm so blown away by it because part of me wants to go, this is silly. And the other part of me goes, that's me as a Christian. You know what I mean? Like she had like four check marks, but then she messed up and it's like, my whole world's falling apart. Right? Because here's the truth. She's never going to be perfect. And it's great to have good days, y'all. It's great when you get to go to bed at night. You're like, man, I, I told somebody about Jesus. I read my Bible. I didn't yell at my kids. I kissed my wife. I'm, I'm winning today. That's great. It's great. But whether or not you win that day doesn't define if you're walking in grace and love of Jesus Christ, right? That's not the decision. That's not the maker of it. You're righteous because Christ is righteous. You're loved because he first loved us. So by all means, let's move forward and let's try to be as great as we can. But we cannot be in complete despair 
when we're not. And when we are told freedom is in Christianity, but for a lot of us, we feel like we're just trading chains. The people in Nehemiah chapter 8 had been imprisoned in Babylon. They had been enslaved. They were literally in chains. But God frees them, moves on Nehemiah to start the rebuilding of this wall. These people are then influenced by God to come back and help rebuild the wall. And they've been free of their chains, and they're literally rebuilding the wall so that they can live in their freedom. And they finish it. And they're happy. And they're excited. And they're proud. Nothing's wrong with that. And they gather to celebrate. And they start reading the law. And all of a sudden, they feel those chains coming back on. And all they feel like they did was take off the chains in Babylon and put on new chains in the middle of Jerusalem. All they were doing was trading chains. I'll give you a deeper thought. How many of y'all remember the story of the prodigal son? Y'all remember this story? In case you don't, let me just kind of give you a, a, quick, a quick reminder. Jesus in the New Testament is telling a parable. He would do this a lot. He would tell a story um, to try to get a point across because a lot of times they wouldn't understand what he was saying, so he would give this story to help them understand it. And he tells a story, a parable, about what it's referred to in the Bible, titled in the Bible as the prodigal son. And he talks about three characters, a father, an older son, and a younger son. The father is a representation of God, okay? The older son is a representation of someone who is saved but caught up in religion. The younger son is a representation of the person who has not given their heart to Jesus, okay? So again, younger son represents us pre-Christ, pre-salvation. Older son represents us after we've been saved but kind of got caught up in religion. And then the father is God, okay? So the, the younger son... He leaves everything behind, and he goes, and he does all these crazy sins, and he has this moment where he hits rock bottom like all of us do and says, oh, my gosh, my life is falling apart. I need to go back to the Father. I need to run back to the Father and be saved and be pulled out of this situation. But like a lot of us do, he starts to have this inner discussion where he says, the Father will never have me back because of what I've done and because of who I am, but I'm going to go back to him. I preached a whole sermon on this years ago. I'm going to go back to him and let him know that I'll at least work for him. I know I can never come back as a son, but I'll come back as a hired hand. And so he starts to come back home, and the Bible says that the father, this is Jesus telling the story, he says the father sees him coming, and the father takes off running. There's so much great biblical uh, facts in that, the fact that the father ran, and he runs, and he, he runs, and he embraces him, and then he ends up reinstating the son as a son, not as a worker, but as a son, and that is the story of us in our sin, being saved by the grace of Jesus Christ, being restored into right placement with God, being righteous uh, in Christ as a son of God. That's that story. It's phenomenal. It's us being having those chains broken off. It's a phenomenal story. But the Lord was showing me this week, I never thought about this. Then all of a sudden, the older son shows up. Bible says he hears music. And celebration. What they doing? Why is there a party going? Are oh, they celebrating? What are they celebrating? Which story are we reading? 
If it's the prodigal son, they're celebrating the return of the son. If it's Nehemiah, they're celebrating the rebuilding of the walls. No matter what, every time there's celebration, here comes religion, right? Here comes judgment. Here comes legalism. Every time. And here's the, ki- here's the kicker. Here's the part I love. The older son shows up and goes, are you kidding me? You've, you've killed the fatted calf for him. We're celebrating for him. He's done all this. And here's what the older son says. Meanwhile, I have been here, anybody know, slaving for you. Wait a minute. You view relationship with the Father as you being in chains? Jesus was telling us then that we have to make sure we don't trade chains for chains. That we don't go from being set free by the grace of Jesus Christ into a religion mindset that feels like I'm working for God. That I'm working for my value. That I'm working for my acceptance. That I'm working for my salvation. To the point that when people talk about God, we feel like we are enslaved. I've been working. All I've done. If I have to work for God, all I've done is exchange chains. If I have to work for his love, I have to work for his acceptance. That's all I've done. Jesus is rescuing us from the chains of sin. And watch this. Religion imprisons us in the, ch- in the chains of shame. So we're set free from one chain, sin, and put on a different one, shame. Jesus sets us free from the chains of condemnation. And religion just imprisons us in the chains of comparison. Free from one chain, put on another. Jesus sets us free from the chains of death, only to be imprisoned by the chains of disappointment. We are trading chains, trading chains, trading chains. I've shared with you guys before that when Darla and I first got married, we were broke. We were broke, broke. You know what I'm talking about? Like broke, broke. I've told y'all before, we, we would tell our kids that, we would throw the, that their toys were broken before we had to buy new batteries. That's how broke we were, okay? And so as anybody does, Darla would come to me with an idea about buying something, and here's what I would tell her. We can't afford it. That's great that you want it. We can't afford it. Chains. Fast forward, we've been married now for 17 years, and we're in a way different place financially. And she'll come to me, and part of it's because I'm a good steward. The other part of it is because I'm cheap. (laughs) She'll come to me and say, babe, we need this. And I'll go, we can't afford it. Isn't that interesting? That it's the same chain. It's just different scenes. Here, I really couldn't afford it, so it's a chain. Here, it's a mindset. I can't afford it, but it's a broken mindset. This is what I'm, if we're not careful, religion and misunderstanding of legalism and law and and an absence of the grace of Jesus Christ will watch us be released from chains because you've been saved, but to stay in a mindset and come over here and take on a new set of chains. One problem's fixed only to uncover another problem. We trade our chains of sin for now chains of self-preservation. And our knowledge of of sin should never be bigger than our knowledge of Jesus Christ. 
Let me say it again. Our, our knowledge of, of our sin should never be bigger than our knowledge of Jesus Christ, our Savior. We are great sinners, but he's an even greater Savior, right? So I'm reading, and here's the part that gets to me in Nehemiah chapter 8. There's a part, verse 14, watch this. This is, this is it's crazy to me. I don't know if y'all, if, if you're reading this with me, watch how this goes. He's reading the law. They're in the town square. They're celebrating. And he says, they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses. They found this in the law, that the Israelites were to live in temporary shelters during the festival of the seven months. So that's, that's the time frame that's happening. So it says, so the people went out. <laughs> they went out and they got branches and they came and built for themselves temporary shelters on their own roofs in their courtyards, in the courts of the house of God, in the square by the water gate, and the one by the gate of Ephraim. And so I'm watching this, and I'm like, this is crazy to me, God, because watch. Over here is literal rebuilt walls where they can live in freedom. But because of the law, they are living under temporary housing while looking at an area that they can live in freedom. And I started picturing, like, imagine if it was raining or if it was cold, and they're, like, all gathered up under. I wanted to build this on the stage, but I went with a different illustration you'll see in a minute. But, but I wanted to build this thing, and they're, like, over here, and they're, they're shaking, and they're shivering, and they're like, this, this is miserable. You know what I mean? This is terrible. And meanwhile, that is over there totally available for people to live in. But because the law said, a law that was before their time, they're now, and I felt the Spirit of God tell me this. Watch this. He said, they literally have been set free, but they are still choosing to live under the law. They have been set free, but they are choosing. They built their own place. They went and gathered things and built this temporary housing and suffered under it when the entire time freedom was right there. This, my friends, is what's happening today in religious culture is we're being taught that because the law said we have to build something temporary, we have to be miserable over here. Meanwhile, a relationship with Jesus Christ is right there. It's freedom. We can be set free. We can be in joy. We can be away from condemnation. We can celebrate. We cannot weep. We can worship. It's right here. It's free. It's available. Well, if you were me, you would go, what does that cost? <laughs> it doesn't cost you anything. Christ paid for that. Well, I don't know. The law says I need to be able to build me a house. Why? Why? What? How stupid would you think I was as your pastor if next Sunday you showed up to 5383 Mount View Road and in the, in the street parking lot I had built this temporary kind of, you know, little, little roof and side walls and it was barely built and you got out of your car and you were like, Troy, what are you doing? I said, come here. We're going to worship under this temporary housing this Sunday. And you say, oh, is the water not working again? Is that what happened? <laughs> no. Building's good. Oh, y'all couldn't pay rent? Nope. Paid it. So why are we out here instead of worshiping together in there? Right? Everybody in here goes, yeah, that's, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. 
But that's the lie we're being told when it comes to Christ and religion and Christianity. That even though that's paid and available, we have to still stay under this. We were at some point were taught that even though we were set free from our chains when we were saved of our sins, we just have to adapt, adapt and adopt new chains. Can I give you an illustration that I hope stays with you for the rest of your life? When I preach messages like this, I hope it changes your, your, your thought process when it comes to Christ and grace. And I hope it empowers you with weapons when you're trying to share the gospel to your friends or invite people to church. Because in the South, y'all, in the South, we are overwhelmed with religion and legalism. And people have a, a very bad misunderstanding of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And there are people looking to people like us to bring them a message of hope and freedom. And I thought if I could give you an illustration, if I could make you see it with your eyes, you can maybe go to work tomorrow and go, I got to tell you what I just saw at church yesterday. Or maybe you'd say, hey, yo, I don't know if you know this, we're on YouTube. Like, hey, let me pull this up. You got to see this for a second. I want you to understand it. So I'm going to do this illustration, and I hope it sets you free. I want to have a time of prayer afterwards for you to be set free. But watch this. Romans chapter 7. Paul is talking. I mentioned this last, I think it was last week. This is where Paul is saying, uh, there's this fight going on between me where I, I want to do what's right, but I keep doing what's wrong. I don't want to do what's wrong, you know, but, but I keep doing what's wrong. There's, there's this fight in between. And towards the end in verse 24, he says something that I think is very interesting. He says, what a wretched man am I. That's him admitting his wretchedness. That's him saying, I'm a sinner. There's nothing I can do. And then he says something really interesting. Watch this. Who will set me free from this body of death? Now, when we read that, we're kind of like, I don't, you know, we just kind of move on. We don't really know what Paul's talking about. He sometimes talks a little crazy. But the reason why people he was talking to knew what he was talking about is because there was literally a process of torture back in that day to prisoners. And here's what they would do. They would take a prisoner and they would chain him to a dead body. That's what it was. So hand, hand, leg, leg, and actually not somebody who's dying, somebody who's dead. Okay. So a dead body, limp, heavy, diseased, nasty, dead, stinky. This ain't the walking dead, all right? It's not, this is, this is dead, this is nasty. Chained to them. So not only would it limit their ability to move, right? Because where are you going to go when you got a 185, 200 pound person handcuffed to you who's dead, who's not helping you, he's dead, okay? Dead. And so they're, they're handcuffed to him. And not only is, can they not move, but it smells bad and it's nasty and it's disgusting and eventually disease would come from this dead body onto their body and it would lead to them dying as well. So that's what Paul was talking about when he said that. But Paul wasn't talking about that literally. He was using something they knew to be able to represent something that you and I were experiencing because very few of us are ever going to be handcuffed to a dead body as a sense of torture, right? It's not going to happen. But Paul was telling us this so that we could see it a different way. Can I show, Chris, come here for a second. Let me show you. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Paul's talking, I believe, about two things. Number one, I think he's talking about us being chained to our sin, all right? I think it's this whole concept of us pre-Christ. And this idea that our sin is behind us. So we're chained. We're chained to sin. So no matter how bad we want to move forward, no matter how bad we want to worship, right? I want to worship God. I want to put my, I want to clap for God. I want to move towards God. But my sin, who I am without Jesus Christ, holds me back. And so Paul's saying, who can rescue me 
from this body of death. Who can take away this sin that is brought onto me? I was born with a sin nature, meaning I was born with this body attached to me. That at six years old, I couldn't worship God like I wanted to because I was attached to this body. At 12 years old, at 13 years old, at 23 years old, at 48 years old, at 73 years old, we were attached to this sinful body. So until we accept Christ as our personal Savior, no matter how hard we try, we can't move forward. Right? And then Paul says, who's going to rescue me from this body of death? Glory be to God, who's going to rescue me through Jesus Christ. And according to John 3, 16, God so loved the world, he sent, every, he sent his son to die on a cross for us so that our sins would be forgiven. So, so now we're free, right? So we're free from our sins. Hallelujah. We're free. If you decide to give your heart to Jesus today, you're set free. When I was 17... And I had a friend leading me through the sinner's prayer. I became free. But Tay, come here for a second. Come here, Tay. But here's the problem. We can be saved from our sins. And then if not careful, find ourselves chained back up again with law and legalism. And all I've done, do you see it? All I've done is traded chains. I couldn't worship God because I was lost. But then I found Jesus. And I was righteous in Christ. But man-made law told me I wasn't righteous. So now I'm right back to my chains, which means we could come into a room like this and people could be declaring, you are my champion. And we wouldn't be able to lift our hands because we know what we did last night. We wouldn't be able to move forward because we know we thought the thought that we had. We know what we watched on TV. We know what we put on Facebook. And that legalism law tells us, and even though we are free, we cannot worship. We cannot move forward. And we're just a bunch of people who believe in Jesus and love Jesus. But we've just traded chains. And so I felt the Spirit of God tell me this. When Paul says, who will rescue me from this body of death? He's both talking about us pre-Christ and the deliverance from the law. Because Jesus is both the sacrifice for our sins, watch this, and the fulfillment of the law. So both of them are bodies, and Christ rescues us from both of them. You can let me go, right? So even though I've traded chains, I'm still set free. But there was more to it. I keep reading what Paul's talking Paul goes on, I think it's verse 25 or verse 26, and maybe verse 25. He says, my spirit, my spirit is a slave to God, but my flesh is a slave to sin. And when you study that, here's what he's saying. You ready? My spirit wants to do what God wants me to do, but my flesh still wants to be sinful. Anybody there? Hey, Brian, let me use you for a second started thinking through this, because I don't know how many of y'all come in on a Sunday morning, and you really, really want to worship God, but everything in your flesh says no. I don't know how many of you, there's moments where you really want to, you want to love God and move forward with God and do what God told you to do, but there's something in your flesh that says no. 
And I'm picturing Paul saying, I'm a slave to God. And I'm like, watch this. I'm free, but what do I do with my chains? Because if I don't do something with my chains, the first thing that comes along to grab it, now I go to them, right? If I don't do something with my chains, the first moment that I'm weak, they can just grab, and now I'm just chained to something else. And maybe I got set free from legalism, but I met a girl. And because I got these chains and I don't know what to do with them, all I know how to give them is these chains. Maybe it's an identity issue. Maybe it's popularity. Maybe it's needing somebody to affirm me and give me identity. I just don't know what to do with my chains because I'm a, I'm a chain trader. I just take them from here to here. I'm reading and I'm like, Paul's saying I'm a slave to God. So you mean to tell me that, let's say you're Jesus. I could take those chains and give those to you? And now when I don't feel worthy to move, ooh, Jesus. I can't go there, Jesus. You don't know me, Jesus. I can't. What's happening? How am I moving forward without being worthy? How, how am I getting that blessing when I don't deserve that blessing? What's happening right now? I've made myself a slave to God. And because I'm righteous, because he's righteous, he opens doors for me. He leads me. And so watch this. Even in moments where I don't feel like I can worship, in moments where I don't feel like I can lift my hands, as he worships, my hands go up. As he moves forward, I move forward. Do you hear me? Thank you. Thank you. Do you hear me right now? We're chain traders. And what Paul's trying to tell us is at some point we got to be willing to give our hearts to Jesus and to give the chains to him as well. And to be able to move me into places that I can't get myself. And to be able to set me free from things that I can't set myself free from. Do me a favor, everybody stand in this place. Band, let me invite you up. Prayer team, let me invite you down. Man, what an opportunity. Is that good? Is that a good illustration? Does that set somebody free? What an opportunity this morning to do one of two things. To either be set free from the chain of your sin by giving your life to Jesus Christ or to be set free from these chains of legalism by being able to understand that you are righteous because Christ is righteous. To be able to say, you know what, I'm leaving that teaching and that mindset behind. Some of us have been taught that since we were kids. Some of us were raised in different religions and different, different mindsets. And, and it's been ingrained in us. And if we were honest, it's the hardest thing for us to get past. Because at some point we assume 
that if God's going to love us, we have to act like we're lovable. And I'm learning, you know, when I met Darla, if she would have walked up to me and said, you need to change this and change that, change this and change that, I said, get a life. You're hot, but you ain't that. I'm just kidding. You, she was that hot, but you know. But now we've been married. We've built relationship. And now my heart wants to change. I want to change. Because I love her. Listen to me. Let me redefine Christianity for you. It's not you meeting Jesus and him saying, change this, change that, change this, change that, then I'll love you. It's, hey, just come here. Let me love you. And the more you get to know me, the more our hearts will align and the more you'll want to change. I'm not going to make you change, but you'll want to change. Amen? So I'm going to pray. I'm going to lead just through a what they would call a sinner's prayer. It's an opportunity for you to accept Christ as your Savior. And then I'm going to say amen, and this band's going to go to sing. And I want to encourage two different groups of people in here. One is that person that's going to give their heart to Jesus today to come down, find somebody who's on the prayer team, let them know that you've given your heart to Jesus, let them help you with some next steps. The next group is the individual that just says, I just need prayer. I don't know what it's about. Maybe it has to do with this ability to be able to really accept grace and move forward with Jesus. Maybe it's about something else. But don't leave out of this place. If that's you, don't leave out of this place without an opportunity to be prayed for. For some of you, maybe you just need to sit there and worship God for a second. Take it all in. Tell him how much you love him. Father, I thank you right now for your word that is alive and moving in our lives. I thank you that we are not trading chains. We're not going from sin to legalism. But Father, we're attaching ourselves to you and that your righteousness becomes our righteousness, and that your grace covers us and it's, and it's sufficient. So I pray for every person in this room right now. Father, I pray for any person that doesn't know you, that they would give their heart to you this morning, that this would be the opportunity, this would be the day that they say, I was saved. If that's you, here's what you say. The Bible says you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. So here's what you do. You say, I'm a sinner. Say, God, I admit I'm a sinner, and there's nothing I can do to save myself. But I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins so that I could be saved by his sacrifice, that his death paid for my sins, and that I am saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, that my name is written in the Lamb's book of life, and that I will spend eternity worshiping you. That's the prayer right there. That's the prayer. Father, for every person that prayed that prayer, I pray they would find help and guidance in walking with you. For every person in this room that they just feel something moving on their heart right now, that they would begin to worship you. That if they're looking for prayer, there'd be an opportunity for prayer today, Father. Do what only you can do in this place. We give you all the praise. We give you all the glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said.